Begin again. Good morning, everyone. Am I seen and heard? Good. So I want to begin by um, mentioning that yesterday, actually yesterday and the day before, I had the great pleasure of listening to Melody one of our Sangha members play in a faculty concert, um, <clears throat> play the piano um, as she was playing Chopin, uh, fantasy in F minor, I believe. And um, I was just blown away. <laughs> Melody, are you there? Um, I, I was just so moved by, uh, by her, um, her performance and her sensitivity to Chopin. And it, it kind of reminded me of uh, my love of Chopin. I think I'm a hopeless romantic. And I started listening to more and more Chopin. One of my favorites is um, the concerto in E minor, piano concerto which one of my professors, philosophy professors would play for me on a regular basis in the auditorium of Penn State many, many years ago. So I'm just so, um, and I recommend uh, that Melody send the link to her performance to the entire Sangha uh, because you will just, you will love listening to her play. Um, and it was a it was a wonderful. It kind of reminded me of something someone said about my daughter playing the guitar. Um, it was a sort of weird comment, but uh, someone who know, knew a lot about the guitar, listening to my daughter play, said that she plays like a man, which is a. I don't, I think what he was trying to suggest was that uh, she, she could play the guitar with great power and determination, uh, which we don't usually associate with women. At least a lot of people don't, but I do. I, I do. But anyway, um, when I listened to Melody, I, I, I didn't feel, I didn't uh, comment to myself, well, she plays like a man. But I did comment to myself, and she plays with great fire, uh, great uh, pa passion. And so, um, Melody, I want to thank you for, uh, for sharing your performance with me, and I hope for the rest of the Sangha. Um, and I know there's so many hidden geniuses <laughs> among our, in our Sangha that if we could just share that with one another, it would be just an incredible, um, an incredible um, gift to all of us to know the great talent and gifts that, that each of us has. So I just wanted to make a public uh, uh, expressing, expression of gratitude to Melody. Thank you. Um, here we are again with the old woman, um, uh, and there are at least 
something like 1,700 koans. And they continue to evolve. They continue to be created, um, even in the present. They're basically stories that, um, that help us uh, and, and help me in ways that I didn't ever expect them to help me to investigate uh, the deeper, deepest teachings in our practice. This particular koan that we've been uh, looking at for the past few weeks is full of questions. And we began, you know, sharing uh, each other with a question and our lives are actually filled with questions. Um, and I'm thinking even from the very earliest time in school, uh, we're constantly being tested. We're constantly being asked questions. And I can remember that when I finally um, uh, passed my doctoral comprehensive exams and I left the room thinking, finally, I'm no more questions, <laughs> no more, I don't have to answer any more questions from so-called authorities. So I was led to consider uh, what the nature of questions are and what constitutes a genuine question and what constitutes what looks like a question, but really is a test. And to begin to explore this question, um, I'd like to relate a story about two Buddhist masters who were invited to Princeton many years ago. One was a young Korean Zen master who lived in California and who was famous for hurling questions at his students and demanding instant answers and reducing them to kind of bubbling idiots because they couldn't respond instantly to his questions. And he reduced them to ignorance, you know, to complete um, uh, destruction of their egos by one question after another. And so he gained a reputation for being a very powerful and um, sometimes cruel master. And the other person that was brought to Princeton to engage in Dharma, um, sometimes called Dharma combat or Dharma discussion was a Tibetan master. And he uh, was in his 80s, late 80s. So he was, what, the Korean master was young and he was a Zen master. And the Tibetan um, uh, Lama was old. He was in his 80s. And he was brought into Princeton to, for the two of them to have uh, a kind of discussion as to uh, the truth of the Dharma. And 
the, um, the young Zen master, the Korean Zen master went first and he, he, um, he reached into his robe and pulled out an orange. And he looked at the Tibetan master who was just sitting um, kind of twirling his uh, prayer beads. And he held up the orange and he, he asked the Tibetan master, what is this? There was no, no response from the Tibetan old man. And again, the Korean Zen masters, again, right in his face. What is this? Answer. Still nothing from the Tibetan Lama. Finally, with extreme irritation and power said, what is this? And the Tibetan Lama kind of reached over to one of his translators. And for a while they were whispering to one another and the Tibetan Lama turned to the Korean master and said, don't they have oranges where, where you live in California? That, what is this, wasn't a real question. It was a test. And the, the Tibetan Lama knew it was a test. <laughs> it wasn't a real question to be answered. And so he reduced the Korean master to ignorance, <laughs> to um, embarrassment. And the entire dialogue was over. <laughs> Done. <laughs> There's another story actually about our um, our lineage holder, Kobinchino Roshi, who um, was at a party, the story goes, he was at a party in California with a lot of Zen people, uh, Buddhist people, and uh, he was cornered by someone at the party. Um, and he was asked, can you tell me what Zen is in a nutshell? And Coben said, well, excuse me for a minute. Uh, I, I have to use the restroom and then I'll be back. And Coben excused himself, went into the restroom, opened the window, climbed out of the bathroom and was never seen again. That was not a question that he was asked and he knew it. So he just escaped through the bathroom and never returned to the party. There's another question that a psychiatrist once asked a Zen master. How do you think you help people? And the master responded to the psychiatrist, 
I try to get them to a place where they don't ask any questions. So this, this issue of questioning, you know, question is not just a noun, a question, but it's a verb to question. And in some sense, in some sense, genuine questions have no answers. Genuine questioning doesn't expect an answer. Like for example, when a, when a young child asks, why is the sky blue? That isn't, that's a genuine question because you, you can't really answer that question in the way that it was asked. It was asked out of a sense of wonder. Um, it was asked out of a sense of amazement. Um, it was, wow, why, why is that? Without really expecting a technical or a complete, completely satisfying answer. It's the why of, why am I here? That's a genuine question. There's, why? It's an expression of amazement. So I wanna go back to the koan. The old woman is asked many, many questions, but it's really this, she was asked the same many, many questions. What is the way to Mount Wutai? And her answer was always the same. So if she was genuinely answering each question as a genuine question, her answers would be different in each moment. Because for each person, for each set of circumstances, the answer is different. But why was her answer the same? Was it because the questions weren't genuine? And so the answer really didn't need to address any specific set of circumstances and thus be different for each person? Were the questions tests of her? Not a real desire to know about the way. I mean, after all, these monks were on a pil they were on pilgrimages. They were on their way to Mount Wutai. So in some sense, they should have known the way. <laughs> they were headed there. So why did they ask her? <laughs> and then I want to get to the second part of this koan, which is the monk, one of the monks goes back to the master at the temple who is Joshu, very famous Zen master, and reports what's happening with this old woman. 
And Joshu says, well, I'm going to go check her out. I'm going to investigate her for you. And he goes and he asks her the same question. And here's a Zen master. Why does he ask her that question? He knows the way to Mount Wutai. So what is he doing? He's not asking her a genuine question either. And so she gives him the same response. Right straight ahead. So in investigating this koan from the point of view of what is a question? What is a genuine question? It would be really important to kind of discover what, when people ask you <clears throat> something and when you ask a question, is it a genuine question or are you testing someone? There are probably other, other aspects to questioning besides something genuine that you want to know. So most of the questions that are asked of us are fake. <laughs> They're fake questions. They're questions that are really testing something about us. They're really not questions that people are genuinely curious about and genuinely want to, want to pursue, want the answers to. So here are some questions that I had about the second, at the second uh, part of this koan. The monk who returned to the monastery What did he report to Joshu that made Joshu think he needed to test the woman? What, what did the monk say that led Joshu to think that he needed to investigate this woman? We don't know. We don't know what the monk who came back and said, this is something that's happening. And Joshua said, I'm going to look into this. Why? Why did he have to go and investigate this woman? And so why did Joshu ask the woman the question he clearly knew the answer to? What was he checking on? What, what was he checking on? What was he investigating with this woman? We don't know. We can consider it. And, you know, I've kind of considered it. What, what, is he, what is he looking into here? <laughs> Particularly since he asks the same question that every, every other monk asked. What is, he, what is he looking for? What is he... What does he expect to hear from this old woman? And then he returns to the monastery and he says to the monks, I've checked out this woman, 
this old woman for you? I mean, first of all, also, why does he have to do it? <laughs> why does he have to do it for the other monks? Why can't the why aren't the monks just satisfied with their own investigation of this woman? Why did this the master have to have to go and and check her out? And then he comes back and he says, "I checked her out for you." And some of some of you, I think, and some others have interpreted this as, "Well, I've checked her out, and she's legit." You know what it means to to check her out is that, yeah, she's she's legitimate. But I'm not so sure about that because when, for example, you ask someone, check out um, check out this restaurant for me, you know, check out the alehouse, you know, check out the cozy tie, and and check it out for me. And someone comes back and says, I've checked it out. I've had some meals there. Well, that's not automatically a, 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 a um, affirmation of its, of its good being a good restaurant. It just doesn't immediately authorize <laughs> that restaurant. But you would want to say, oh, you checked it out. Well, what did you find? And we don't have any information about that. We don't have any information about what did Joshu find about this? He just says, I checked her out. So why don't, why don't we have any more? What, what about this koan? You know, what is that supposed to teach us? The fact of the matter is that this particular koan, the old woman koan, is considered what they call a nanto koan. It's one of the hardest koans to not, I'm not gonna say figure out, but kind of come to terms with. Um, it's, it took Hakuin, who is a great master, eight years to come to terms with this koan. So here we are three weeks you know, into it. And I, I'm also wondering how many of you actually spent any time considering the koan over these past few weeks, you know, whether it kind of, it kind of planted itself in your psyche and you found yourself uh, thinking about it and just allowing it to unfold in, in your mind um, as much as it did with me. Uh, be interested to know whether, you know, it's just not interesting to you. But um, so these are all questions. Nothing is revealed to us in this koan. Um, so imagine that you are attending a, um, a teaching from the Dalai Lama. And you arrive in this great hall, this great auditorium. And there are thousands of people there, all with shaved heads and robes. And, and there are a lot of lay people as well coming for teachings. And there's Richard Gere, right? You know, 
up in the front row, you know, and all these celebrities. And the Dalai Lama comes in with his retinue of monks and nuns and with his saffron robes flowing and his all of his prayer beads, you know, wrapped around his arm. And he goes up and sits on this great throne. And he is the Dalai Lama, you know, and there's some incredible presence and pomp and circumstance associated with this person, this great drama around him, all of these credentials of this great master. And then imagine yourself on a bus, <laughs> sitting next to an old woman with a shaved head. Maybe she has a tattoo of the Buddha on her cheek. <laughs> and she's wearing a sweatshirt and sneakers, an old torn sweatshirt and sneakers. And she starts talking to you about her life experience. Very different um, sense, wouldn't there be, of checking this out. You don't have to check the Dalai Lama out. He's been checked out, looks like. But this woman, you gotta check her out. She doesn't come with all the trappings. She doesn't come with all the authorization. Could she have any wisdom? She's just standing by the road there. You know, sometimes she's seen as serving tea or um, yeah, she has a, an inn by the side of the road and she's taking care of the, the monks on pilgrimage. And, you know, you don't ask her anything, right? So one of the, one of the questions that arose for me in this, in this koan is where we, where we go, where, where we go for Mount Wutai, you know, what is the way? Is, is the way directed by just anyone you meet on the bus? Or do you reserve your checking out just for, for the people who aren't coming with lots of credentials? Who do you ask the questions of? Who do you trust with the answers? And so this is a profound um, a profound investigation. I wonder what the old woman's answers would be if she were asked real questions. I can't imagine what wisdom she might impart if she simply wasn't repeatedly asked, you know, 
what is, how do I get there? Maybe she would have simply said, right straight ahead. 